You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Aaron and Klaus, who are the authors of Global Class, which is a number two Wall Street Journal bestseller. They are also the founders of Global Class, which is a Silicon Valley-based consultant firm that works with companies expanding globally to implement best practices of the most successful global-scale businesses. The Global Class team, the same team that founded 10X Innovation Labs, a global accelerator located in Silicon Valley, has worked with over 2,500 corporate executives and more than 1,700 entrepreneurs across five continents. On today's show, we talk about what is company market fit, what research should be done before expanded into a new market, how important is localizing processes when a company enters a new market, when a company expands globally, how does its values expand into new markets with it, and much more. This is a great episode, and you're going to love it. All right, now let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Aaron, Klaus, I'm super excited for you guys to be here this week on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I've read your book. It's fantastic. But we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about so much more today. But, you know, before even diving into there, could you give our audience a little bit of background of each of your careers and, you know, kind of what led up to this amazing piece of work? So Klaus and I have very different stories. So I I was born and raised in uh, San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley. So it was always sort of part of the the psyche locally. But I, I had a bit of a global mindedness because my mother was a travel agent. And uh, even uh, she, she taught at a local community college and even had me like grade papers when I was 10 years old. She, she taught cultural geography and tourism and done a good amount of travel. But I, I started my career at AT&T as part of his leadership development program, sort of future C-level. One of the youngest to be regional VP. But I always knew in my heart I was an entrepreneur. So I left, started a few companies. Some failed. Three got acquired. One I was on uh, Shark Tank for. And then about six years ago, I was asked to teach entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, where I still teach today. And then almost five years ago, Klaus and I teamed up on 10X Innovation Lab. Now, Klaus, before your background, wait, wait, three companies got acquired yeah. and one on Shark Tank. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about those? And, and Klaus, I want to find out more, but you, know, you can't just leave that hanging. Eclectic mix of businesses I've started from custom wedding invitations to portable beer pong tables, which was one of the companies acquired, to one of the early taxi apps, like around the time of Uber. We were focused on taxi companies. We ended up not being successful for a number of reasons. And then the other two acquired, one was an early real estate crowdfunding platform, which I was on Shark Tank for and turned down an offer from uh, Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful. Uh, And then finally, uh, an investment aggregator, a mobile investment aggregator of alternative investments like crowdfunding deals we jokingly called Tinder for investing. Like, I like this deal. I don't like this deal. You'd swipe through. And, uh, and so we gathered a lot of data from customers around their investment profile. And that got acquired by a company called North Capital. That's sort of a back end for a lot of crowdfunding platforms. So oh, um, genius. That's fantastic. And, and Klaus, yourself. Sure. Yep. So I, my career is a little bit more global. I've lived and worked on four different continents. I'm from Denmark originally, uh, but I lived in Santiago, Chile, Hanoi, Vietnam, and now Silicon Valley. And so... What I did in, in Vietnam was particularly interesting to the topic of the book, Global Class. I helped lead a relaunch strategy for Carlsberg, one of the biggest beer brewing companies in the world. 
And then I came to Silicon Valley to stick my teeth into entrepreneurship and, and innovation. And so I came here about a decade ago uh, and I started to work for an organization called Silicon Valley Forum, which is one of the oldest nonprofits or were in the past tense, I guess, one of the biggest uh, or oldest nonprofits promoting innovation and entrepreneurship. And when I joined the organization, it was very locally ingrained as a company. But quickly, we started to focus on international, helping global organizations with launching acceleration programs, whether it's government or corporates. And so over the years, we work or I have worked with more than 2000 founders from more than 50 countries. And I'm a big believer in that when it comes to international business, formative experiences are important. And so my experience in, in Santiago, Chile was interesting because in my education in Denmark, when I was younger, I got taught, obviously, that, you know, Pinochet, one of the biggest dictators in Latin America. He was bad, which he is, obviously. But when I came to Chile, I had to stay with this family in Santiago, Chile. And when I entered the door, I saw the mother, pictures of the mother kissing Pinochet on the cheeks. She was a big fan, obviously. And that to me was a big shock when I entered, obviously, the house. And so I had this like conflict with myself, you know, thinking about should I leave? Should I stay? What should I do? I decided staying and not judging the book by its cover. And so Having stayed, I stayed there for about a month and I quickly sort of learned more about the family, not necessarily addressed the issue, but it ended up being what I call now today my Chilean family. And I love them too, you know, uh, very, very dearly. And so it's really, really important when you step, in, step into new countries and new cultures that you're empathetic and try to learn and understand. For that situation when you were with her, over that month, did she kind of open up and say, you know, this is why I'm a big fan and this is why I have the picture here or... I'm not sure about yourself. I spent time in China. Definitely know the disconnect between different networks, news, where you are and how much of history you're allowed and how that history is kind of given to the people. From that experience, were you looking at this like, okay, I'm in a whole new culture, whole new world. And, you know, what kind of questions kind of came about from that. Actually, I didn't address it directly, to be honest. It was more just about learning about the family, the background, just getting to know them intimately as human beings. And I think that's important when you do an international business, learning about people and who they are and what makes them tick. And so, no, I never really addressed it because I think that will be too early, only staying there for about a month, right? And so I think, I think to address those issues, you need to spend a little bit, little bit more time with people, to be honest. And so no, it wasn't really something I prioritized or focused on, but it's more like connecting with them at a human level, which I think is important when you try to build a business abroad or try to expand a company, trying to learn and understand and be empathetic and try to understand how you need to adapt your business to be successful in that country. How did, I mean, Klaus, with your background, helping companies from around the world, Aaron, your entrepreneur background, how did that come together to create 10x labs what's kind of the origin the thinking behind it was it just hey let's go get hot pot eat and come up with some ideas hey let's start this or what was it right there's actually a little bit of an interesting story behind is that our wives their mothers are best friends and so that's a little bit the way that we connected in fact actually my wife in the beginning when she came to silicon valley she stayed on aaron's couch and so aaron learned a little bit about me and my now wife you know connecting early on i think those you you told that story actually at the restaurant nothing yeah we were, we were at a restaurant and and she went to the bathroom but he left her phone on the table and he had texted her and so she came back and we're like who is this klaus character and she's like how do you know who that is and you know fast forward they got married and have a couple kids now but 
Right. And then when it then comes to the business, back when I was deciding to leave Silicon Valley Forum, I was thinking about, okay, hey, I want to build this new organization, 10X Innovation Lab. And back then, Aaron had exited his other company. I was like, what are you doing, Aaron? Are you doing anything, anything these days? And he said, I have a little bit more time on, I, on my hands. You'll be a partner in creating uh, you know, 10X. And he said, yes. And we decided to continue to help companies that wanted to scale globally. And in that work... Uh, we saw a lot of mistakes happening for companies that want to scale internationally. They made the same mistakes all the time. And so we were like, why does this keep happening? You know, are there not any resources out there? And there is, but it's super fragmented. And so we had this crazy idea. How can we actually go out and figure out how to build some structure around that journey? What it takes to take a company from your first initial market to international markets. So these companies right there that you're seeing making the same mistakes were, were you kind of at a, almost like kind of that Sunday viewer watching the team play or were you in the thick of things? Like how much, how involved were you seeing these mistakes happen? Yeah, so we, we, we use the word accelerator, but our, our model is a little different than traditional accelerators who have like this open application that companies apply for. We work with government agencies across the world, Ministry of Science and Technology, Ministry of Small Business, Ministry of Trade and Commerce. And they bring in certain companies and we you know, help them figure out the right candidates. But a lot of it is connecting into Silicon Valley. A lot of it is, is learning how to validate new markets. And we, we saw, as Klaus said, a number of mistakes. And one of the ones that's primary mistake is the joke we like to tell is they get off the plane at SFO and they expect that when they get to the baggage claim, there's a venture capitalist with a million dollar check to say, here you go. And they think, let's go raise money and then let's go get US customers. And it's really the opposite. You need to Prove that there's a customer base here before you can go. And so we, we helped assist companies like one of them, Cinnamon AI, to help them go through a different process to validate the market, to show commitment to it before actually raising capital and, and starting to scale in the US. Well, then how is it different scaling locally or, or find product market fit locally versus finding market, product market fit abroad? Well, you know, you can't apply the same agile approach as you do in your first initial market where you just pivot and iterate until you find product market fit. You also have to respect what's already been built, right? Because if you just apply that, you know, approach, you will create a lot of different business models around the world. And that, you know, creates complexity and prohibits scale. So instead, you have to balance what we call localization with organizational complexity as well. And so that's why we built tools to support in having that conversation. So essentially, what you need to do is that you need to go in market to do localization discovery, obviously create your hypothesis in terms of how you need to change and adapt that business model. But then they also have to have, you have to have that internal conversation within the team to discuss, okay, where do we want to put up guardrails to ensure that scalability in the company? And so that's a little bit of the conversation that we have in, in sort of the middle of the book that we would say is actually one of the most important things, because we often see these mistakes happening when it comes to companies wanting to go international. There's two tendencies. Either they apply what they call the company way of doing things. They think the success at home will sort of be, you can push that into a new market. Or they apply that agile approach where they just go all in and trying to find product market fit that increases complexity. So that balance has to happen. That's interesting. So tell me a little bit more about maybe the kind of the resources people should think about when going to that new market. Is it just, okay, we're going to throw our product in there or is it, Hey, we need to wait a bit longer. Where, where do you see people making the mistakes there? One thing that we talk about is how global is the new agile. And what we mean by that is that just like with the agile versus waterfall methodology, you need to have the whole organization on the same page about that. If some people are saying, 
let's stick to the, the roadmap versus let's be iterative, you have problems, right? So as Klaus talked about, if you have some people who say, we need to do things the company way versus others that say, no, we need to find more of a local way to do things, you're going to have problems. But the other parallel to Agile is, you know, there's, there's more of an iterative approach. If you look at how products are developed, minimum viable products, it's not spending three years building something perfect. It's bringing something to market and then seeing how it works and then changing and adapting. We think that's what's happening with global. It's not, let's go build an office, let's hire 25 people and have a big grand opening. It's how do we iterate and test on this in small ways before you know, we can prove that it actually is worth us committing to a market. We say in the book, we've created actually a framework called a business model localization canvas, where, you have, where we say you have to take your initial, you know, validated model in your initial market and run it through two filters, government and regulation and culture. Then try to create your hypotheses in terms of how you need to change. So that's a model and a structure we help build for companies so they understand what are the key questions that they need to ask related to all aspects of the business model. Let's go back a little bit. There's one thing that it's still in my mind that you said, the idea that companies just get off a plane, there's a VC there ready to write them a check, and then they'll use that money to expand a new market. What is kind of the best way for a company to think, want to enter the, the, the U.S. market? Kind of, I mean, is it they need a certain number of sales? They need to be in a certain number of cities? They need to, how, how much do they expect to do on their own before any investor here will actually take a peek? Well, I think just taking the cinnamon example, right? They were so focused on talking to customers, validating the solution in the U.S. market instead of what other founders are focusing on investments. So it's really about talking to customers and understanding how you need to adapt that business model to successfully scale. Then it's obviously proving and validating the business, building that traction that then can lead to interest from investors, right? Because rarely you can actually come from another country, come in and raise capital. Because yes, you built something at home that might be successful, but how, how does that actually translate into that new market and Silicon Valley specifically? And so we always, in our programs, focus on that validation piece. The validation is key to then be able to raise that capital down the road. Because if you just focus on investment in the beginning, you're going to waste a lot of time trying to raise capital. You're going to spend 50 conversations in 50 hours, but you're not going to get it because you haven't validated the model here. Klaus also talked about this concept we call localization discovery, where you talk to not just customers, but other stakeholders as well. And, and often what companies will do is they'll, they'll think of analyzing a market very much from a, you know, a research exercise that you do from the office at headquarters back in your, you know, your, where you're located. And it's really about going in market and having conversations with all different types of people to see if that's really true on, on the ground. Like one of the, the stories we heard in our research is from Troy Malone. He's head international for a number of fast-growing companies, including Evernote. And when Evernote was expanding into India, they were targeting sort of the upwardly mobile young Indian population for their premium product. And for Evernote, their payment processing was credit cards. Well, they did the research and they found that credit card penetration was really high within that group. Then Troy went in market. He, he calls it a listening tour. And he talked to all sorts of people, including like taxi drivers, waiters and waitresses, hotel you know, staff. And he said everybody had an auntie story. So everyone had like an aunt that had a story of a family member who got a, got a credit card, racked up a bunch of debt and like ruined their life. And so everyone has a credit card. They're just too scared to use it. And so if Evernote had gone to market with that credit card processing based purely on the, the research from afar, they would not have been successful. So instead, they used another local payment processing uh, and they were much more successful. 
Yeah, another example is DocuSign when they were expanding into Japan. They did that localization discovery tour, right? Trying to figure out how do we need to adapt our platform and business to be successful. And so they could apply what we call in the book, again, that company way of doing things, just forcing the model into that market. But they actually knew and understood that signatures is not common in Japan. It is actually, let me put it out, Hanko stamps, like a physical wooden piece. And so instead, they actually took this Hanko stamp, digitized it with a company called Shatyahata which is a physical Hanko stamp maker that's not digital at all. They created that e-Hanko, what they call it, and then shared a part of the economics with that company and then scaled into Japan. So they were culturally empathetic to that local ecosystem and not applying the very disruptive approach, saying we're going to disrupt Shajahara. They're going to be gone in, in, in five or 10 years and we're going to come in with this digital product. They actually recognized that they needed to partner rather than disrupt. Before continuing on that, also going back, why do you think so many government groups, so many organizations do these accelerators where it's, okay, let's take companies from our home country to Silicon Valley for two weeks to meet investors. Hopefully they get you know, a check written to them. They go, how valuable is that? It's a great question. I think the value is there if you source the right companies into the program. And the reality is it doesn't always happen. Oftentimes you bring entrepreneurs over that's more interested for the tour rather than for the business. And so Cinnamon is a great example of a company that truly had the interest of coming into the accelerator where we couldn't do all the work in our accelerator program, but actually helped them afterwards, right? Whereas many other companies, they come over, they're here for a week, they haven't really prepared themselves, they don't, they're not asking the right questions, and then they go home and go, you know, going about what they did before coming into the program. And so I think there's a lot of money wasted in the process, to be honest. And I think, you know, a lot of the programs also, unfortunately, is a PR machine. It's like we're doing this global thing. It's amazing. The entrepreneurs all over the world, we're doing business. But there's a lot of companies that end up not doing business in the program. So it's about really ensuring you do the right preparation, but also to bring in the right companies and founders into the program. So you don't waste that money and waste that time. I think the other thing is that we hear a lot of these companies, they, they buy into, you know, Klaus talked about the PR of it, buying this branding of let's make more unicorns. We need more unicorns. You know, in Silicon Valley, they have so many unicorns. And so much of the resources focused on early stage companies. Right. And part of what we've done with Global Class is creating these tools for companies that are past that stage, but need help in that scale up stage. Because you don't go from being an early stage company automatically to a unicorn. You need to actually have some tools. And in a lot of these countries where, where they're from, it's hard to create a unicorn just with a presence in that local country. They need to go to global markets. And so they need some of these insights to be successful. Yeah, I think there's a, another element to it as well. It's, it's about bringing the companies over that may be seeing the US market as the first initial market rather than trying to expand them too early and still operating in Japan or Korea, et cetera. Because typically they're super early stage. So how do you manage two markets at the same time with a five-people team? That's very hard, right? Reality, right? And so it's more about figuring out what type of companies has potential in the U.S. to then focus and scale in the U.S. market. A great example of a company that we interviewed is Vivino, right? Vivino is a wine app founded in Denmark to say, hey, there's a big wine industry in Silicon Valley and in, in Northern California. And also, there's a lot of early adopters around these technologies. So let's go to the U.S. and choose that market as the first market to scale in. Another example is Sendesk, also a Danish company. Obviously, I'm biased. But they also chose the U.S. market to scale in as well. Because back then, when they started and founded, 
sort of the SaaS model wasn't as common or popular in Denmark to basically pay and, and, and work with. And so they chose the US market as, as the market to scale in as well. So certain things you need to consider around your business model, business model and business overall. What are the market factors? What are some of the dynamics in that market that you can then you know, look at and then see, okay, is this market the right market for us to focus on initially and in the beginning? One other quick related point that, that I think is particularly exciting around this idea, we, we use the word initial market because your first market may not be where you're from, but it's seeing companies even from bigger markets choose other initial markets. Like there's a Silicon Valley-based company called Zipline. They do medical, medical supply delivery via drones. And in the US, there's a very well-established transportation system and you cannot fly drones. <laughs> like you can't just do whatever you want. In Rwanda, they actually have a big need for these medical supplies distributed and you can fly drones almost however you want. And so that was one of their initial markets, even though they're from Silicon Valley. And then there's another example, there's Spotify, right? They didn't start in the US, they started in Sweden because in Sweden, there's a little bit that cultural norm of, of streaming, of downloading and piracy. They actually had a piracy party within the parliament in Sweden, <laughs> exactly. And another factor is also the music industry in, in, in Sweden was, was pretty big. They incubated APA, all those big mus- music artists. Third factor is the, they actually had fiber in Sweden back then. So in terms of streaming, downloading, speed of internet was much higher than in the US, as you know, it's kind of crap in most places, to be honest. And so there are certain factors in Sweden that allowed for that business model to thrive in Sweden. And so they scaled there and then went into other Nordic countries. Meanwhile, in the US, all these other streaming services, they're competing against each other and competing against regulation. So they waste a lot of money and time in the process. And arguably today, Spotify is probably the biggest success story in that space. There is one sentence in your book, and I think we've touched on it already, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper. Instead of clinging to the command and control mantra of the past, companies are realizing the benefits of making decisions at the edge. Can you dive deeper into this? Yeah. So one of the big things that we found that these global class companies that have been successful at reaching global scale have is this notion that headquarters is not command and control, telling everyone what to do, but is more of an enabler and supporter of different localizations that are required to be successful in multiple markets. And so a a driver of that is two-way innovation. So it's not just headquarters saying, we're going to do things this way, but creating mechanisms to say, oh, that's an interesting idea. Or or even the local team saying, hey, this works here. I have a, a mechanism, a path to be able to share that through headquarters to then have it spread amongst multiple places. I think a great example is on the table there as well, right? No, sure. So uh, we, we have some Heinz ketchup. So in the U.S., how do we use ketchup, right? We open up the hamburger, we put a big glob there, we close it, and then we eat the hamburger. And so usually when you use one of these push tops, you know, it, it has this big blob of things. Well, in Brazil, they actually eat it very differently. So instead of putting it all at once, they will squeeze a little bit, take a bite, squeeze a little bit more, take a bite. Now, for U.S., the, the top doesn't really matter as much. I use it once. I go put it back in the refrigerator, back on the table. But in Brazil, if you have a U.S.-style top, it doesn't really sit well on its top like this, right? Or, or the little nozzle touches the table, and you don't really want that. So they created a new nozzle that sprays less ketchup per squeeze and can be set up on the table because you have two hands. You want to use them to eat your hamburger. You only can use one hand to put more 
the more uh, ketchup on it. So why didn't you bring the Brazilian bottle here? This is the Brazilian that, that, bottle. That is the Brazilian. Oh, that so is, this yeah, is yeah. the one. Yeah, it looks yep. very similar. It's just the the nozzle is different. If we had a U.S. comparison, you'd see it doesn't have this indented area in it, and you couldn't stand it up on its side. It would tip over because the nozzle. Uh, sticks out. So Aaron was just in Brazil, and I actually demanded him to bring back some bottles, for, you know, from Rio, and and so he was there to speak. Thank you so much. <laughs> Finally, I got it right. So, yep. Oh, that's crazy. Okay, so okay, so we talked about go. To, actually, we didn't talk about it yet. Go to market fit. What about company market fit? So everyone kind of knows like like product market fit. That's pretty well known term in Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and we talk about these different stages of expansion. So in market entry, the goal is to get product market fit. But that's not really enough to truly create a scaled business in the market. There are a couple other missing elements. And so one missing element is uh, from an organization perspective. So if, if you, sorry, let me take a step back. If you look at product market fit, it's, it's go-to-market strategy and operational strategy. But to get to company market fit, you need to add in organizational elements like building the team and then also the cultural side like a whole cultural fit side which often you need to have this balance between your company culture and local culture because things in big ways and even small ways don't operate the same like as an example when i was working at at&t uh, i worked with this partnership with shanghai symphony telecom and we had a big meeting here in san francisco where the the executive team from there came and I was the only person who lived and worked in San Francisco. The rest of the team was from AT&T's headquarters in Dallas. So I was coordinating like the restaurant we ate at and the, the telepresence room we were at, et cetera. And then at one point in the meeting, my boss you know, turned to me and said, why don't you share that idea, the strategy that I had been developing? And I was like a you know, general manager level, director level position. And so I, I explained the idea and then we finished the meeting and the CEO of Shanghai Symphony Telecom came to me afterwards and he said, Wait, that, was, that was your idea? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. And because I was administratively coordinating things, because I knew the lunch spots and everything, he assumed that I was an admin person that wouldn't be given culturally the right to share my strategies and things like that. And so you, you deal with all these sorts of cultural differences of how to operate an office, how to run things. That's a, a different layer that you don't have when you're doing product market fit just in, in your home market. Maybe another story to share is is Rakuten uh, culturally when they were expanding, they're all about speed, 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 and so the way that they thought about expansion was acquiring companies. So they acquire companies in the U.S., in the U.K., all over the place. And one one country that were in particular, you know, difficult to get up and running was the U.K. office, and they didn't really understand why. And so the chief well-being officer and the co-founder of Rakuten, uh, which is also in an interview in the book. He went to the UK to talk with the local office, trying to figure out what are the kinks here? What, why, what are we missing as an organization? Why can't we get this spun up together? And so what he did was he stood in front of all the employees. He put a whiteboard up on the wall and said, you know, tell me what matters to you, like core values, you know, working, etc." trying to understand really that local office and what the priorities are. He wrote that, you know, simply on the wall, everything. And then he afterwards put up the core values of Rakuten and then tied all these things back to Rakuten's core values. So he's trying to bridge between that local office and, you know, what they need and what they're looking and also the core values to the Rakuten core values as well. So finding a way to bridge between obviously the headquarter of Rakuten, if you will, and the culture of Rakuten and then that local office as well. Now, is there ways to kind of expedite that by say? okay, we're only going to hire local and this will speed things up? Right. Or is it 
okay, we're going to have a local person that maybe went to university there. Right, right. How do you how do you bridge that gap quicker than, you know, our local team here is just going to move these five people over right. there. Good luck, guys. Hope you right. learn the language quickly. <laughs> right. And we, we actually build a team building framework. I'm, I'm sure that's what you're alluding to a little bit because you, you had your little cheat sheet, if you will. And we talk about bridging between company knowledge and local knowledge in that framework specifically. And so obviously you need to have the you know, company knowledge culture fit understand how to get things done internally in the company uh, and be aligned with the company core uh, culture and uh, core values. But then you also need to have the local knowledge, you know, local language skills, understanding the market and also local networks, et cetera. So we say you have to have sort of, there has to be a bridge between these two. And the way to think about that is, you know, we share the example of BlaBlaCar, a French tech company that's sort of the early lift model, long distance, you know, car sharing, if you will. Carpooling. Yeah. Carpooling, yeah, uh, that's the right word. And so they were thinking about, okay, hey, we know we need to build a global organization because it's long distance carpooling. And so they're thinking about what are the next markets we want to go to in the future? And they thought about Spain because obviously it's close to France and so forth. And you can drive over there. Thinking this concept in their mind in terms of building for two markets. And so they started to hire people from Spain one year before they actually decided to launch in that market. So they were thinking about building teams and hiring people wherever they happen to be and specifically for market they wanted to go to, bring them into the organization so they learned and understood the core values and culture of BlaBlaCar and built that trust internally and understood how to navigate the organization as well. And they used their local expertise for expansion also. So that's a way to think about things. There's different models to, uh, to, approach, to do this. There's a company called ThoughtWorks. They had a Cotia model. But it basically brought someone over. They part- he partnered with somebody else at a local level. They had sort of a co-general manager model. And so Platt, which is a fintech company here, they sent one, hire one, and then they transition. So the one to send over, he sort of you know teaches that local employee at the local hire in terms of the company core, culture, core values, helping him to get set up and spun up and help him understand how to navigate the company. And then there's obviously the Uber, the tradition or the, the launch team that they got very famous for. But it basically had a launch team to win in the market, then hire that team, then they transitioned as well. So there's different ways to approach these things. It sounds like, though, that this isn't just, okay, we're going to go into this country next week, we're starting. It sounds like these are pretty well mapped out plans. Right. And and a part of what we say, sorry, or in, in the beginning is like, you need to do that internal analysis in the company. It's not just about, hey, we want to go expand. You can actually set the organization up for success early on. They'll enable your success in the future. So to give you a little bit of an example is Plio is a Danish company. Plio is a fintech company in Denmark. The first 21 hires spoke, they could speak around 17 different languages in the organization. So imagine you have people, a very diverse workforce that could be eyes and ears to other markets and see patterns of the success at home. How can it be translated abroad? Then an extreme example of maybe not doing completely right is a Korean company that I spoke to in Korea. They raised several, several hundreds of millions of dollars. There are about 600 employees. And I asked them at, uh, at the office, I was meeting the leadership team, how many languages can you speak at the company? And they kind of giggled and smiled a little bit and say, maybe three. And to us, that's like, you know, then it's going to be hard. Because imagine if you hire somebody in the US that has to get resources and support from different parts of the organization, whether it's HR, product and engineering. How can you actually get that stuff done if there's a lot of things lost in translation? And if that team at home is not set up to enable and support that local hire. 
becomes very difficult, right? So when do you think Esperanto is going to catch on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad both of you guys got that. <laughs> okay, so all these markets enter in new areas, total cost of entry, TCE, that's mentioned in your book. I love that phrase. Please, please tell our audience about that. So I, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept of a total cost of ownership equation. In particular, a lot of software companies will map that out in their sales process to say, you know, here's the cost of the software, here's the cost of the implementation, here's the cost of ongoing management. So we, we saw that as you know, something we could leverage as it relates to the context of, of uh, entering new countries. There are a couple parts to it. So one is, is thinking about the cost associated with the localizations you need in order to be successful, but also it's thinking about it over a period of time, right? So a lot of companies will think, okay, well, we'll spend six to nine, maybe 12 months and we'll hit traction in this market. It'll be great. And you often need to spend two or three years in order to do that. And so you need to make sure that the adequate resources are dedicated over a period of time. And to a certain extent, you can't localize everything at once. And so you need to set certain priority levels based on priority or, or implementation stages. And so that can be a common language to say, okay, here's what we want to do. Here's the localization. Here's the cost associated with it to make sure you get buy-in amongst the board and, and the executive team. And often it's not very structured in the organization. They just you know do that a little bit, right? And so we're trying to put that structure in, in into expansion. And to kind of share a little bit of a story of, of, of companies or a company that, that didn't do this well, to be honest, in terms of building that structure and also brain trust when it comes to mapping out localizations was Carlsberg, right? I came to Vietnam in around 2012. They've been there since the mid 90s. And around 2011, they fired the whole team. Fired. And so what then happened was we came in, they took the second in command to the CEO, planted him in Vietnam, hired a new team, and we got brought over to be a part of that relaunch efforts. And we came in and there was no knowledge. There was no like a brain trust. There was no information we could act on besides a Nielsen report. Yes. You're <laughs> cringing a little bit here, but so so we had to start from scratch, and so it's really important, and that's part of our message uh, message in the book for companies to build up these structures and processes to capture these insights to understand, okay, what did you do successfully in this market, and how could we take some of those insights, some of those learnings, and bring that over to other markets? So it's important that you build that knowledge sharing within the organization to avoid you make a lot of these mistakes along the way. So like an, an example of that, we talk about creating what we call a localization resource team. And so often what happens when you're launching in a new market is so much is put on that local GM, right? And let's, let's say she and the team uncover, okay, we need to make this localization to get traction in this market. Well, what does she have to do? She's got to go figure out how to do that with the engineering and product team. And all of a sudden, one especially if she's a local hire, she might not have as much of that institutional knowledge to know how to get things done at headquarters. But also she and the team are being taken away from doing what they should be doing, which is getting traction in the market and sales and, and uncovering new localizations. So the localization resource team is a cross-functional team with representatives from every single department who is there to be sort of a front door to not tell the local teams what to do, but to be there to remove obstacles for them. So you know, imagine like a project manager sort of centralized person they're the front door. They come in. Okay, we need to make this localization. They kind of say, okay, we'll take it from here. We understand it. You keep doing traction in the market. And then they, they'll go and get it done. Now, the benefit to this brain trust Klaus was talking about is over time, this team understands what works and what doesn't work to the point he was talking about before around complexity. You know, you can say, here are the guardrails. This can change. This can't change. 
And then from a visibility perspective, it's pretty powerful. So instead of an executive, a head of international or, or anyone in the C-suite being like, okay, I got to go talk to every single department to figure out what's happening with this international thing, they can go to one centralized place and they're able to say, okay, this is where we're going with this market. This is what happened with each of the others. So with this, with all these companies putting all these resources into new markets, how much of that, that local culture kind of spills over into these these countries. I mean, you'd mentioned Vietnam, mentioned Korea, mentioned all these countries and between Silicon Valley and they're completely different. But if you take Uber or any of these and say, okay, we're opening up shop over here. Here's our core beliefs. Here's our team you're going to work with. How much of it bleeds over? It starts with doing something that a lot of companies don't do, which is universalizing core values. So a lot of companies, they, the core values are really important. It is what makes them successful, but they're so crafted for that initial market they're from that it might not resonate in other markets. And so as companies are starting to think international, they need to revisit those core values if they didn't from the beginning to figure out, okay, does this apply? Like an example we like to tell is with, with Walmart, one of their core values is about respecting the individual. Well, in a lot of Asian cultures, it's not about the individual. It's more about the collective. So that wouldn't really resonate. And so universalize those core values so that it can resonate. But then it's about celebrating the diversity. It's not just saying, here are our core values, you need to take them. But what benefits can we get from recognizing and celebrating the different cultures that are happening in those local markets? In those local markets, why would someone want to do something that doesn't scale well? I mean, I think think some of it starts with, with going back to the normal finding product market fit process, right? When you're going through that process, more of that white glove, you know, non-scalable minimum viable product is what helps you truly understand the customer need and how things are different. And so you need to revisit that. You need to reuse that muscle in local markets to truly understand what localizations are required to be successful and what's not. And some of that's manual. Okay. And one other thing that was mentioned multiple times here, tools. What are these tools that you guys created that are in the book or that that you're referring to? Right. There's a lot of tools, right? There is the uh, localization premium analysis tool that's really understanding how to balance localization with organizational complexity. And uh, that's a specific tool will help fast-growing companies adopt when they want to decide on certain markets to expand to. There is that business model localization canvas tool, which is a little bit more of a quick, agile testing localization discovery tool. There is how do you build the right teams? There's like the team building framework that we developed. There's also some some mindsets that we developed in the book called the interpretable mindset as an international. So if you imagine a pyramid, we have the bottom part where we say that's the agile mindset. People who are iterative, resilient, growth focused. That is given away for companies wanting to have these agile thinkers within their organizations that can navigate bureaucracy, build coalition and bind to drive expansion, digital transformation or innovation initiatives. In the middle, we have that company mindset. Those two together form the intrapreneurial mindset. That's commonly talked about within organizations and large companies. What we say is the tip of the, that pyramid is a culture mindset, global mindedness, culture, curiosity, basically a mindset that allows leaders to navigate new markets, have empathy with those markets, and then understand how to localize that business, right? So I'll give you an example, Abe Smith, head of international Zoom. He gained his culture mindset when he was an English teacher in a rural fishing village in Kushu, Japan in the early 90s. That gave him the aspiration, the motivation. To build his great career. And where he gained the agile mindset was when afterwards he joined a small bagel company, you know, bagels eating. He helped grow that, develop that, and then also expand later. So he gained that agile mindset back then. 
But where he gained a company mindset, navigating bureaucracy and building coalition of buy-in was when he joined Cision, Webex, Cisco, large organizations, where he really learned that muscle in terms of navigating bureaucracy and, and building that coalition to support these initiatives. And arguably, now he leads expansion at one of the fastest growing companies in the world. And other sort of examples of culture mindset is Troy Malone, who led expansion for Evernote, Weebly, Drata, fast growing companies. Where he gained his culture mindset was when he was in a two-year mission in Korea and then spent a lot of time there where he learned the language and, and the culture as well. And now he's been you know, leading expansion for many companies into Asia and APEC uh, in particular. And uh, Catherine Himes, who led product expansion at Slack, she was the first international intern in Baidu, China. You know, imagine being the first international intern embedded in a very Chinese organization. You have to navigate a lot of cultural complexities there, right? And so typically we see this pattern of formative experiences that leads people to have these very, you know, unique international careers where they help lead international strategies and expansion for companies. Okay, so now tell us a little bit right now, the book, what's been the result of the book, the successes of it. Feel free to brag a little. <laughs> uh, so the, He's American, he likes to brag. So the book came out, one, what we interviewed 400, over 400 people from more than 50 countries in researching the book. And everyone was just incredibly generous with their time. I, I think part of it was it was during the pandemic. Everyone was at home. They're like, yeah, I'll talk to you kind of random guys that we don't know. But lonely. Uh, yeah, a little lonely. <laughs> um, and, but then we ended up getting 45 endorsements from the likes of Eric Reese and other people in the Agile community to executives leading large organizations like former head of international, former VP of international at Apple, to CEOs, to, to others at, at smaller companies. Um, and then after launching the book, first week out, it was number two on the Wall Street Journal business bestseller list. It was on the national bestseller list. And now we're in the process of getting it translated into other languages, Chinese, Korean, others. And, uh, and we've been uh, going on a bit of a world tour, socializing, you know, talking to conferences in Korea, in Portugal, at Web Summit, in, in Brazil, at Rio Innovation Week, Come, come Up was in, was Korea. in Korea. Yeah. yeah Korea. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, we're, we're just very excited to be able to share this book to the world, not just the U.S. In true global class manner, we want to make sure it's actually brought into other markets where maybe necessarily English is not the common language or spoken a lot. So we're looking at very specific markets in terms of go-to-market as a book. We see a lot of challenges when it comes to expansion and growth, in particular in Korea and Japan and even Brazil and other markets as well, where we want to be a little bit intentional around how we localize it, if you will, to the point of the book, where we want to bring in stories from founders and entrepreneurs who are entrepreneurs, who have this global class mindset, and who actually have led successfully companies into new markets. So they become almost like the... What is the word for it? They become sort of the, the, the great examples that companies can aspire to be. And so, you know, we're excited about that internationalization and expansion of global class in the future. And this is an important point that we discovered in our research. While the entrepreneurial community is very well connected, this international expansion community is not because it was often a very lonely experience. You know, the likes of like Abe and Troy and Catherine and others, it's like everyone else is focused on the core of the business where most of the money is made. And they're like over here saying, no, there's a lot of opportunity here, but you got to do things different. I need resources. And so we want to make this experience of global expansion and global growth a shared experience amongst uh, everyone. And, and we model, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, but we model ourselves a little bit after Eric Reese. Yeah. You know, 
he didn't create Agile, but he was taking what was happening disparately in different organizations and brought it together and created that common vocabulary. And so we're hoping that this becomes the common vocabulary for business leaders who want to take companies in internationally. And it's kind of already happening. You know, at least we've gotten a lot of great feedback from executives who, who's adopted this, you know, this language. Uh, Troy Malone, when he was applying to become the head of international, head of international operations at Drata, he used four of our frameworks in those interviews to articulate sort of how that journey looks like, but also his expectations going into that role. And so we hope that the tools become powerful for these international leaders to get more resources, support, and buy-in for international expansion initiatives. Personally, I'm also hoping that we can help students and -and up-and-coming talent learn this vocabulary early on so they can actually step into these roles and be more successful as well. So we're we're looking right now at, um, you know, how do you go to market with the book? Uh, we're looking at online curriculums, license, licensing that out to accelerators, universities, and even corporates that want to kind of learn about this theme and, and enable their talent to be more successful leading global careers. All right. And with that, any, any highlights, anything you're really looking forward to for 2023? And if anyone wants to get in contact with yourselves or find out more about the book, what's the best way to go about doing that? Sure. So, uh, I mean, Really, this is about getting the message out and and helping as many organizations and people as possible. Like we talked about these entrepreneurs, they're everywhere. You know, entrepreneurs are not just people who start businesses, but they're people who want to have global careers. Uh, And so we want to build as many of those as possible. Our website, globalclassbook.com is a great place to learn a little bit more about what we're doing. Klaus, K-L-A-U-S at globalclasscompany.com or Aaron. A-A-R-O-N at globalclasscompany.com. We'd love to connect with you and right. pretty active on LinkedIn, I guess. So, Or yeah. if you use Cacao Talk, you can ask with Santa <laughs> What's Claus. What's <laughs> My ID is Santa Claus CPH. And I, that's the same online. So we have a lot of these apps where we connect with local leaders. But but yeah, so we're, we're just very excited to kind of bring it out there. And there's two specific things that we're looking at in terms of socialization. Uh, we're building up a city lead network of global, yeah. you know, globally minded entrepreneurs, basically having people embedded in different ecosystems to socialize that message. And then we're looking to partner with publishers. Publishers Publishers that are passionate about global business, they want to bring this book to market as well. Fantastic. We're going to have that information in the show notes. And I think we're also going to have a book that we're going to raffle off to to an audience member, signed copy. So to get your name in the hat, write a review. However you want to write that review, write a review on a platform. Take a snapshot, email it to us. You can get all the contact at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Once again, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Connect with me there as well. We'll raffle off the name. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. Love having a conversation. Earlier the better. And with that, Aaron Klaus, I want to thank you guys for your time this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.